What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually protecting their house and they actually gave up their their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Most of the time, we understand there are procedures that we must take in the case of an emergency. On a theoretical level, we might know that we need to have a backup plan and our bags packed. Like the in-flight safety demonstration, you learn how to use your air masks and safety jacket and you sort of understand that these are steps that might have to be taken one day, but we never think it will happen to us. My friend Adam, he lives on a beautiful property in Yarramalong, right on the edge of the bush, with his wife Amanda and their four children. And I remember bumping into Adam towards the end of 2019 and hearing that they had needed to evacuate due to bushfires multiple times. Now Adam and his family are people who had to turn their theoretical knowledge into action due to a potential crisis. So I recently visited Adam to ask about that experience and how things have felt, you know, a year or so later. Adam's originally from Texas, so he treated me to some Texas barbecue brisket as we sat at his table and had this conversation. Now, sadly, you might not be able to taste the brisket, but if you listen carefully, you'll be able to hear the cicadas in the background and imagine you're at the table with us. I drove up here today and was just saying, when I got here, it just feels just good for the soul just to drive along these roads with just lush, Australian wildlife and your your place looks out, you know, very directly over beautiful bush. Uh, do you want to share a little bit about this place where you live and, yeah, what are some of the things about it that you love as well as some of the unique kind of challenges and hazards that you have to live with? I've always loved the space and just uh, the beauty of it, just really natural bushland. You look straight into the valley and, yeah, so we've we've loved that. We've owned it for 14 years uh, we lived here for 13 years and I was I was just probably ignorant to what bushfire risk really meant in practice I mean having gone through the planning process with the RFS and council and having to build a home to a certain standard um, I guess in theory understood but we're on a hill it provides a beautiful view but it increases the risk of fire should something sort of burn in the valley and come up at us. Um, so that was all really pretty theoretical until last summer. 
mm. which is probably a common experience. You know, you can hear that stuff. It's like the um, you hop on the plane and you hear the the um, you know sort of emergency procedures. You never yeah. really take it in because yeah. you just don't think it'll happen, but then it does happen, and you hope that some of that stuff will come to the surface. Could you just share a little bit about what you know that 2019 2020 bushfire season was like for you guys? Um, what was it like leading up to it, and what some of the story of that time for your family? Yeah, I mean, it was things always have layers to them. So we had other things going on in life, you know, we're busy with just a household of six people anyway. Um, but ironically, we had actually applied for a hazard reduction permit and had been granted that, but because of the conditions couldn't burn. It's about, it's almost close to 10 hectares that we were going to burn. Um, Cause the bushfire hadn't been through our property from what we were told for like almost 20 years. So there's a lot of fuel load that had built up. Um, and our house our house faces sort of northwest. So you're on the hot side um, of the hill, at least this part of the property where the house is. Um, so that burn didn't happen. And so we sort of kept an eye on it. And because the Gospers Mountain Fire was, in terms of proximity, still a long way away, but the direction it was burning was straight at this part of the coast. Um, and then things like the smoke, um, things like practically packing up and just getting stuff ready to go should we need to, started to bring it more home. Um, where our house is, we cop winds, westerly winds, and I just remember the feeling of blistering hot days, westerly winds, the smoke, and the animals like our dogs, um, chickens, just everything that we had. You could It was just stressing everything um so that that was probably building up and then progressively the fire got closer and closer to really the containment line at georgetown's drive um in colnure and that became the sort of make or break so i think we evacuated three times um when for our own sense we felt like it was dangerous or we were sort of instructed to um I'm still technically a member of the of the brigade, but hadn't been active. I have my BF training, um, but between work and just everything that was going on, didn't practically really get the chance to pitch in. But people that I knew sort of saying, oh, it's going to be a bad day. Um, we packed up three or four times and stayed with my wife's parents who live in Colonyvale, so not too far away. Um, but that just peaked and troughed day after day, week after week. And I think the psychological stress and just physical exhaustion mm. of not knowing, like, is it going to break the containment line at Georgetown's Drive? Because if it had, it would have been to our property in, uh, in minutes on some of the days. Um, so that sort of day-by-day -day background, I'm not an anxious person, but I did, I did begin to experience anxiety and... You want to protect your family. I think for kids, the the right forming experiences to say difficult stuff does happen. Like you said before, you can't control those, but you absolutely can control your response, your attitude, um, your approach to it. Uh, yeah, I hope there's a positive sense in it out of that. What's that been like for you since... Then. Yeah, I, I mean, since then, I think it's been a, a process of just 
you know, are actually just processing some of those emotions. Uh, what was interesting in some of the days through the fars, if the wind blew a different way and the smoke disappeared, you had less physical manifestation of the risk and you just felt different. You thought differently. Whereas as soon as the smoke was physically present in your home or outside or visible, it, it triggered different things. And so we actually managed to get the hazard reduction burn happening this, this last year in 2020. And the smoke, I mean, it was obviously, we had heaps of crew here, um, trucks, and I mean, the RFS were amazing. The volunteers did an amazing job. The process of that burning and the smoke coming directly at the house did make me feel that sense of dread again, even though rationally I knew that it was all managed and controlled. Um, so for us, we have a great community around us, so we're really connected in with friends, family, and so there was just, um, I wouldn't say like formal support there, it was just people that you connect with and talk to, and everyone had had something of a similar experience. Ours was probably more heightened because of where we live, um, but I think it just took the time and probably a few intentional discussions. Um, I have a mentor that I've met with for about eight years, and that was really great to just actually, you know, things come out when you start talking that you didn't know were in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a, a probably longer process to really understand all that we went through. And I mean, whether we fully understood it or not still, I don't know. Yeah. No, that's another thing that's come up in multiple conversations is that, you know, you can't control your circumstances, but being in a network, being in a, yeah. a place of belonging and community yeah. um, makes a huge difference. It's the biggest thing that makes a difference. A lot of people live in rural areas because they appreciate a degree of independence or um, like even isolation. Um, I mean, for us, we've had periods where we're more engaged with our local community and less. Um, some great experiences in that, some you know, less than great experiences in that as well. But I mean, that's life, that's community, no matter what. Um, I would say one of the practical outcomes of the experience is how important local community is just for knowledge sharing for support um i mean we we literally had no visual neighbors for many years so um trying to foster and connect and one of our neighbors who who can see our property we started talking on the phone more someone that we'd never met down who was our closest neighbor physically just down the hill met him one day where he just came up and said what are you doing? That was the first real connection there. So I, I think that, I think resiliency is, is built through community, like mature, healthy, empathetic community. One sort of side thread that I just wanted to touch on, you know, mainly talking about your, um, your personal life, your home, where you live, but you also work um, in an organization that does international development work. And I just thought I'd ask, have you seen, you know, in terms of uh, a community resilience lens or mm. like ingredients mm. for resilience, have mm. you seen things in different countries, different crisis and disaster moments where you've learned some things or have some kind of reflections from some of those different observations you've had? Yeah, it's a great layer, a great question, because I think it brought more empathy to what some of the communities that we serve go through because 
the majority of what we've had disaster relief for, um, it's often things like hurricanes or, I mean, there's been civil unrest circumstances or like earthquakes, um, natural disasters. But I did think back whether there was far specific far instances, and I I don't think there is not not to my memory at least. Um, but the community question is is directly related to it because often in less materially resourced countries, um, majority world countries, what the strength is built around is community because you don't have the luxury of consumerism or material things um, diminishing the importance of community. It's, it's hard when plan A for you is survival. Um, there's no plan B. And to survive in those circumstances, whether it's the Philippines or Burkina Faso or, you know, Guatemala, you you need community around you. I mean, I think that's one of the silent factors of resiliency. I mean, I think we're designed to be connected with people um, that I think rural areas tend to be more isolated, like physically, just because of property sizes are the way, you know, things work, it almost takes an extra degree of intentionality to have that community built. And I, I think the majority of people do. I mean, even like the RFS is a form of that. Um, but it's it's hard to have material items provide comfort in a circumstance where that is what's, you know, specifically a threat. Mm. Um, whereas people and people that care for you and are around you and you care for them and are around then, um, that's a different category of thing. And, I mean, one of the beautiful things about Australia that I've found is the volunteerism, like that. that is amazing, that sort of pitching in and generous financially. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate you sharing, um, yeah, some, some stuff that is vulnerable and that is, um, you know, like we said, uh, the property doesn't have to be damaged for there to be a lasting impact to work through. Mm. So that's a real thing and I just acknowledge that and am grateful for you being willing to open that up in this space. Is there a final thought or two that you would want to leave with people listening to this in the context of uh, a resilient central coast community? The takeaways for us, I think at the high level, have been things that we already knew but but prioritising. So um, I think it does come back to community being a priority and I, I I think more facilitated so even even things like the RFS or even things like how community education happens or what's built I, I know there's great things in that it's already done um, there's assets in it how do we leverage those more and build more so that like you say um when circumstances happen again that test and challenge, whether they're natural disasters or whatever they are, um, you don't have to hit fast forward. You're not trying to like stick something in the microwave to cook it quickly that you actually need to cook slow in the oven. Um, I think that community piece, it's hard to hit fast forward on it. So for the Central Coast to be a resilient community and to be one that has strengths that are really that are built around and there is empathy and support and health and, and growth, not just economic growth, but like 
personal growth for people, I think that continuing as a priority would always serve as well. Adam's story gives us an insight into what it is like to experience something that shakes you and those you love to your core. Adam and his family had a bushfire survival plan but didn't really understand how to put it into practice. This conversation drives home the opportunities we have now to begin planning, practicing and starting discussions around what we can do in an event of a crisis before a disaster has struck. Adam's story adds to the tapestry of great conversations we've been having surrounding the hazards and trauma that comes from bushfires. What was unique about the 2019-2020 bushfires was the pandemic and lockdowns that followed. What did this mean for our relationships and our mental health? We spoke to Nick Tebby, the National Executive Officer at Relationships Australia, a leading provider of relationship support services, offering counselling and a range of community support and education programs across the country. We had a valuable conversation with Nick about how we can rally together as a community and look out for our family members and our neighbours. Whether we face bushfires, lockdowns or personal emergencies, it's clear that healthy relationships are a key part of our healing and resilience. Well, you have a very impressive bio, Nick, from what we can tell, and uh, we're very honoured to be able to spend a bit of time with you. One of your roles, one of the kind of aspects of your life is being the National Executive Officer at Relationships Australia. Just wondering if you could sketch out a picture for us of what Relationships Australia is and does and, you know, yeah, just kind of what, what it actually exists for. Sure, sure. Well, Relationships Australia is an interesting um, body because it's actually a group of companies. It's not just, there's not just one of us. Um, There's one in each state and territory. And so we're a federation um, and we've been operating in Australia now for over 70 years. Um, And it actually started in the post-World War II era um, when a lot of soldiers were returning to Australia and trying to, or struggling with, um, returning to civilian life post-war. And so the government funded at that time some services to support those returned soldiers, particularly in their relationships, so marriage guidance um, and, and other support. And so that's where Relationships Australia started. Um, and over the, the 70 years since then, it's evolved into a whole range of um, different supports for individuals, for families and for communities, really looking at ways that we can help people have healthy and safe relationships, um, manage their own mental health um, and live well um, and be connected with their community. And so right across the country, while each of the states and territories operate slightly differently, uh, they all have that key focus in common. And then my job as the National Executive Officer is to sit here in my office in Canberra um, and talk about what all our members are doing and all the great work they're doing. Um, We have over 2,000 staff around the country. Um, We, from here in Canberra, we do a lot of um, policy work, research, um, and generally looking at, you know, what's the what's the state of relationships in Australia generally, and how can we make sure they're best supported um, through whatever um, it is we happen to face at the time. So you mentioned that Relationships Australia provides support and services. What 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 kinds of services? 
Mm. Well, the key um, core services are around um, relationship counselling, um, supporting both individuals and couples and families um, with their communication with each other and dealing with difficult issues. Um, where families are going through separation, we'll assist them with dispute resolution when that's necessary. Um, supporting separated families with things like uh, children's contact and shared parenting arrangements. Um, and then a whole range of other um, add-on services. So we run some of the youth mental health headspace services around the country. Uh, we provide other family mental health services. We provide specialised family violence services um, and a lot of education. So uh, education around relationships, education for people who are providing services to other people. Um, and then in each state and territory, depending on perhaps what the local governments are funding, um, a range of services more specific to things like elder abuse, uh, financial management, drug and alcohol addiction, gambling addiction, you name it, there's there's a bit of everything. As we think back on the last 12 months, you know, this word has been thrown around a number of times, unprecedented. What are some of the trends that you're seeing sitting in that kind of space, looking at relationships in Australia with a national kind of view? Um, are you seeing some particular trends or changes I think um, what's really interesting when we talk about unprecedented is that, yeah, no one really predicted what 2020 was going to be like and we've all spent a lot of time lamenting the year that has been. And when you think back, it wasn't just the pandemic, but there was the, the bushfire crisis before that and it seems like one thing after another. And, and what I think where the trends are heading is that there's a, there's a real flow-on effect from those sorts of large-scale disasters and interruptions to our daily routine uh, that impacts people both on the individual level with their mental health, their ability to, to cope um, and to deal with the anxiety of, of all of these events, and then in their relationships, just in the way that they um, interact with other people, they draw support from other people. So some of the trends that we have seen in the last, um, say, six to 12 months um, are people uh, under stress. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, we know there's a great deal of economic uncertainty uh, where people are facing job losses or cut down on hours. That's had a really significant impact. But we know that a lot of the other stresses that we've seen have been um, social or relationship-based. So when we went into lockdown, families were suddenly forced to um, stay under one roof um, and there may have been two, three, four or, or more people all trying to get on with every aspect of their lives in that confined space. So suddenly the house was, you know, where we went to work, where we schooled our children, uh, where we had our recreational time, and we were doing that all in this close, confined space with other people, and that put a lot of strain on relationships. Um, combined with this idea that we couldn't go out, couldn't see our friends, our extended family and things like that. And so one of the trends that we have seen um, and some of our research has shown us is that a large number of people really felt that pressure in a negative way um, and felt that this was putting additional strain on their relationships. And I don't think there's any great surprise in that. Um, people felt more lonely more isolated because certainly we can't forget that there are a huge number of Australians who live alone mm. and so going into lockdown really meant that they were cut off from everyone else. Mm. Um, so we've seen those sorts of trends but then as I said there's some positive ones. So for a lot of families having that forced together time and not being able to be distracted by everything else meant that they were able to focus on, on themselves, um, on being together and on maybe re- reconnecting with some of the, the more interesting or, or 
um, less um, less modern ways of doing things. So they spent more time doing jigsaw puzzles and and um, talking, you know. And and I think that that has had certainly some of our research has shown that has had a really benefit beneficial outcome mm. that has brought some people closer together. Um, so the trends are mixed. There, there are people who are suffering and there are people who are actually saying, well, this year has been good for us. It's, it's brought us closer together. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that play out over the next year or two years that um, time will tell how, how that exactly translates into demand for services and things like that. Mm. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that like there's – I had focused on the negative trends, but definitely, yeah, people are being – or were in COVID forced to kind of come together. I hadn't really mm. considered that well, as well. Yeah, one of the things we know is that natural disasters and COVID, I think we can call a natural disaster of a type, actually has the effect of bringing communities together. You know, if you think about a bushfire ravaging a, a small town, people really come out in support of each other in, in, the, in response to that and, and in the period after that, helping each other through their needs and, and the rebuilding phase. And so there is there is a great element of togetherness that you get out of something like this and I think what was really difficult with COVID is that you know the physical restrictions the fact that we had to isolate that we weren't allowed to go out and and socialize with other people we had to overcome that and we had to find ways of still being together and supporting each other um, despite the fact that we actually couldn't sit down face to face and have a long conversation with someone and I think that's been one of the trends of the year is people creatively connecting with people around them and, and that's a real positive to take forward. Yeah, that's great. Um, one of the key themes we're exploring on this podcast is the idea of resilience. And I think for me personally, I often think about resilience in terms of individuals or communities. Mm-hmm. But preparing to speak to you, I was thinking, what does it actually look like to be a resilient couple, a resilient family, um, resilient in those close relationships that we have? Um, what does that look like from your perspective? So, so resilience is about um, the the positive, supporting um, nature of the relationship. When we're talking about couples and families, it's being able to see through the tough times together, and and really to 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 work together for a positive outcome, despite despite the difficult. Uh, situation that you're facing and and so we have seen that with families across the country Um, we've seen resilience in the way that they support each other in the way that they deal with this you know competing um, priorities of homeschooling and working from home and everything else Um, and I think the key to the resilience that we've seen in families is that there's been this open supportive communication between them from the beginning um, to say well this actually sucks, you know, it's not good. Um, But it's okay that we're struggling because everyone's struggling. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to actually work with that and say, we've put that on the table, this is difficult, now let's find a way together to to work through it. And and that's been, I think, you know, the real key to getting through. Um, You know, if you're a business... Uh, you have a business continuity plan with how to deal with, with you know, a lockdown or, or some other issue that might impact your business. And um, one of our members, New South Wales Relationships Australia, came up with the idea of a family continuity plan. And it said, you know, how does a family respond to, to a crisis and, and to a real significant change in the way it does things? And so they looked at and, and they promoted a lot of information for families to say, well, what do you need really? What you need is a clear understanding of, of where you're all at, 
Um, so that's that open and honest communication. Um, you need a real willingness to, to learn from the people around you and, and to compromise when, when things are difficult. Um, and you need to be supportive of, of each other. Um, so those are some of the traits, I guess, or the character traits of a, of a crisis-ready family. I think some of the practical things that families can do is actually um, really name the issues that they're facing and plan. You know, so, so we were suggesting early on in the crisis to actually set down a routine or a schedule for the, for the home, the home that has now become everything. So when do we have um, alone time? When do we have family time? When are we doing schoolwork, work, work, whatever else it might be? And actually creating that structure around what was a really unstructured time um, meant that families had a bit more certainty and could work together and knew, knew what was expected of them. So setting those expectations, building a structure and a routine are some of the practical things that I think families can do um, to be crisis ready. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Did you, did you discover anything within your household this year? Um, has there been any kind of things that have emerged just in your personal relationships that you found helpful in, um, yeah, redefining some of those rhythms or putting in place some helpful communication tools? I think one of the best things that we did in my household early on was um, acknowledge that we all had different things that, that we were really um, interested in that sometimes others weren't interested in. And so acknowledging that it was okay to actually spend time alone, even though we're all in the one house. Um, and so, you know, whether it was to read a book or do a crossword puzzle or, or some art or something, just away from each other. And that, that was useful just to give you an opportunity to reset and refresh and you know I know I've heard other people who use that time to do yoga or meditation or whatever it might be but just something that's really just about you um, and I think that was a really useful thing to do early on um, the other the other big factor for our family and I hinted at this before was just saying well sure we can't necessarily be with our friends or with our extended family but we can still enjoy so much around us so we spend a lot of time in the garden um, we spend a lot of time with nature um, and just appreciating that, you know, there's a lot of things going on in this world that don't revolve around, you know, technology or movies or trips to restaurants um, that can still provide a lot of joy. Mm. And, and that was certainly something that, that saw us through. Mm. I was reading a little bit about what Relationships Australia does with Neighbour Day. Would you be able to explain that to us, what it is and what's the backstory around that? Yeah. Sure, sure. So Neighbour Day is a, a really um, exciting, I think, but, but a, a friendly campaign. It's really just about identifying that connection is actually really important for all of us in whatever way it works for us. Different people will seek connection in different ways and we're not saying that we all have to be best friends with our neighbours. But what we're saying is that we live in a community and it's really important that we understand that there are different people with different values and different needs in that community and so being open to that and, and being there to support people through tough times or you know being friendly uh, can actually make a huge difference and and so there's research out there that says that you know where people are um, feel more identification with their neighborhood or with their community they feel better connected and better supported um, to work their way through their own mental health um, and also, you know, significant events like natural disasters and things like that. So Neighbour Day is about um, just reminding people that 
when we live in a community, it's really important to be aware of those around us, to be available if people need us, um, and to reach out and, and just let people know that you're there. And so that, you know, in some streets that involves everyone in the street having a, a shared WhatsApp group where they share updates of what's happening in their street. Um, for others, it might be catching up with their neighbour over the back fence every, every second day for a chat. You know, it doesn't really need to be a really formal structured thing, but it's just about having permission to, um, to be connected to those around you. What we found this year with Neighbour Day is that connection and community was a lot more than just those sorts of physical things like having a street party or a barbecue with your neighbours. It was about, well, where is your community? Maybe your community is a group of people you connect with online. Um, or maybe it's people who are in a different country but have similar interests to you. And so expanding that idea of where we can find connection and who we can draw support from um, taps into what I said before about that idea of being creative and finding creative ways to connect. And so we heard stories of people having, you know, um, dinner parties over Zoom and, and trivia and, you know, even um, singing uh, choirs on, on the internet and things like that. And, and that just showed that people could tap into their interests, find people who, who had similar interests to them and, and be there for each other in a way that, you know, was incredibly creative. And so I think this year Neighbour Day has, has changed its focus to, to really asking the question, well, where do you find your greatest source of support and what can you do to cultivate that and to make the most of that so that you feel healthier, happier um, and your well-being is protected? Yeah, it's been such an interesting period of time because my feeling is that there's kind of this recovery of the local neighborhood. You know, a lot of people where we live um, commute from Central Coast to Sydney and, you know, have started to work from home and rediscover um, their kind of local area. Out of this year, I started a, a kind of fortnightly men's group. We're all dads, so we find it hard often to get out on a weeknight for a, you know, decent period of time. Um, but just doing the fortnightly Zoom has been a great source of connection. But I've also really enjoyed walking my dog around the neighbourhood and seeing more people um, out, you know, in the real world, so to speak. So it's it's cool to see how both of those things can actually, yeah, work together. That's right. And I think, yeah, I, I think we need to accept that actually um, a mixture of both is is the right thing to be aiming for and, and for some it'll be more one than the other um, and you know there are certainly people out there for whom technology is not a suitable replacement for face-to-face -face contact um, whether it's because of accessibility issues or just purely not liking it um, but then there'll be some for whom that's really where they get all of their contacts so mm. if you have this acceptance that connection can mean different things to different people um, then yeah it's just about finding what's right for you. And I think it's important for all of us to, to at least think about those in our community who maybe are more vulnerable, um, more isolated, um, and to think about ways that, you know, we're comfortable with, but that we can actually still reach out to them and provide some level of support to them. So, um, you know, that may be um, really small gestures like just giving them a friendly smile and a wave every now and then, or people who reach out to their neighbours and say, hey, can I you know, grab you something when I'm down at the shops later on this afternoon or something like that. But, you know, it, the, the, the trick with Neighbour Day and the whole idea about connection is you need to do what's right for you, what feels good for you, but at the same time be aware that you know, there are people around us who might need 
more from us than we need from them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because that's part of living in a community. Mm. Yeah, very true. Um, earlier in our conversation, uh, you were kind of mentioning the fact that we're going to continue to see that kind of ripple effect or in some ways that lag um, over the next couple of years as people continue to grapple with what has happened and, and continue to process, you know, the, the grief, the trauma, the, the positive new things that have come out of it, all of that. I'm just wondering from your perspective, if you think there's a key kind of learning or key um, thing that we should be reflecting on to position ourselves for what is to come over the next couple of years. Yeah, it, it's tough because there's a lot we don't know. You know, we don't know how children um, and their development have been impacted by the last um, year. We don't know how teenagers and young people who have been going through you know, disrupted schooling and things like that. Um, and then for relationships, you know, what's what's the impact going to be over the long term? We know that, as you said, grief, there'll be, there'll be a long tail to um, some of the trauma and the grief that people haven't been able to process this year as a result of COVID. Um, so I think, you know, the key thing really has to be to, to have this ongoing conversation. And, you know, some of the early um, really positive things we saw coming out of COVID is that people were much more willing to talk about issues like mental health, about loneliness, isolation, than they necessarily ever had been before. And suddenly, you know, right from, from the grassroots level in, you know, a conversation I have with my mate, probably over Zoom rather than face-to-face, up to politics and, you know, what our Prime Minister and, and Ministers are talking about, mental health, loneliness, even suicide, really getting a lot more airtime. And I think that, you know, if, if there's one thing I want to see continue into the future is that we still have those conversations and we continue to normalise that people do go through difficult times. And right now this year, a lot of people are going through difficult times, but for some people it's a lot more difficult than for other people. And so if we can keep having those conversations and, and being open to, you know, what might be an uncomfortable or a difficult conversation to have, um, that's how we're going to work together in the best way possible to make sure people are supported, they're able to reach out to the services they need, and that those services will be adequately resourced and staffed to be able to support people. Um, so I think, you know, right across society from the individual up to government, we need to keep talking, um, communicating, and you know, it all comes down to communication uh, about these sorts of issues so that as they evolve and as we see them take shape, we're ready to respond. Yeah, keeping that conversation going. Yeah. I was wondering too, Nick, um, talking about mental health, do you have any strategies about upskilling our listeners to kind of put things in their toolkit on how to manage their own stress or anxieties? Do you have anything that um, particularly works well for you that maybe might help our listeners? Um, look, I, I take a lot of time to just process things and, and you know, uh, coming back to that idea of spending time alone. Um, I enjoy going for long walks by myself or with my family or, yeah, with the pets, whatever it might be, just to, to sort of stop and, and invest a bit of time in my own energy levels. I find I, I read something yesterday that said, you know, your, your energy levels are like your bank account and if you keep taking out of them and not putting in, you're going to find yourself in a lot of debt. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it because, um, you know, your own energy and your own ability to, to do things depends on how well you look after yourself. Um, so for me, it's, you know, going to the gym, getting out for a run, whatever it might be, but just 
investing that time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like the, the famous um, airline um, safety video of, you know, you put your oxygen mask on before you look after anyone around you. So um, there's two, you know, two analogies in the one answer for you. But um, there you go. And, and I think it is, yeah, look after yourself, um, focus on your needs and, and your struggles, um, and that will make you a better person able to support the people around you as well. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and your insights and um, just the valuable work that you're doing and, and being willing to be a voice in this conversation. I wonder if there's a, a final um, thought or sentence that you would want to leave our listeners with uh, around these ideas we've discussed. Oh, okay. Uh, well, thank you. Um, it's been great to, to be part of the conversation. I think just coming back and drawing on the Neighbour Day and the connection um, piece, I think, you know, we, we do well as a community, as a society, if we are connected. Um, and the the more effort we put into our own connections, the the more we will thrive as a community. So um, the, the byline of Neighbour Day for the year ahead is that connected people connect communities. Um, and I think that's, you know, a good point to, to leave it on is that the more we focus on connection, supporting each other, uh, the better off we'll be as a society and, and the better prepared we'll be to deal with whatever comes next. Our conversation with Nick was really illuminating. What I took away from it was that crises can make people feel more isolated and lonely and whether we're facing a pandemic or a bushfire, or something else, the most vital part of keeping us afloat is our relationships. In the words of Nick, resilience is being able to see through the tough times together. Adam and Nick solidified for me that whether you appreciate an aspect of isolation, like Adam and his family living independently on a rural property, or whether you're facing a forced isolation like recent lockdowns, Support networks and community should be our biggest priority. What we can do is plan, communicate, connect and work together to make sure we are supporting our neighbours and networks, regardless of the emergency we are facing. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So... If this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other and continue to become emergency ready now.